we are just a few weeks from school starting again. All the parents are cheering. All our teachers are in. All our students are kind of probably a mixed bag there. Some of them really love it. Some of them really dread it. As we think about school, as we think about headed back, heading back and all that's involved there, um, a lot of times what we think about is our own experiences through that journey. And I think if most of us um, kind of did an evaluation of our journey, there would probably be some teachers that are very much uh, in our hearts, on our minds, that we love very much, that uh, really made a difference in our life and our experience, who helped us to grow, helped us to learn, helped us to become uh, better people. And then there will be other teachers who are on our mind that are not necessarily our favorite people, people that uh, we did not uh, interact with very well on some level and uh, in some way. Um, and uh, there's different reasons for that. Sometimes it's personality clash. Uh, sometimes it's because the teacher's not a very good teacher. But let's be honest, sometimes it's because some of us weren't very good students, you know, and um, life is about learning. And it's important for us in the Christian faith to be about learning and about teaching. Christ's command to us, his primary command to us as he left was what? Make disciples. In order to make disciples, you have to have the ability to teach. In order to grow as a disciple, you have to have what? The ability to learn. Today, as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25, we come to an encounter between David and a woman named Abigail. And in their encounter, we see, I think, Good models of a good model of discipleship. Discipleship is about changing things. Daniel Webster put it this way If we work on marble, it will perish. If we work on brass, time will efface it. If we rear temples, they will crumble to dust. But if we work on men's immortal mind, if we imbue them with high principles, with just fear of God and love of their fellow men, we engrave on those tablets something which cannot, which time cannot efface, which will brighten and brighten to all eternity. <coughs> Excuse me. This chapter is a key moment in David's life. Verse 1 begins with the statement, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him. And they buried him by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. This is a key moment. David's mentor has passed. He doesn't have that go-to person anymore. He doesn't have that person in his life, in his experience, in his experience to, to, to guide him, to help him. Saul has just confessed the reality of David's right to reign, previous chapter. 
Samuel's job is essentially done and, and the Lord takes him. But who will David be now that he doesn't have this individual? Now that he's on his own, now that he's making his own decisions, charting his own course. How will David respond to the circumstances that he finds himself in? Well, the story that follows is a story of a test case, if you will, an example of what kind of king really will David be. As the story proceeds, there's a man in Maon. His name is Nabal. And Nabal means fool or stupid one. Now, we don't know if his mom actually named him that. That would have been something. <laughs> um, it, it could be that it was a nickname. It could be that it was a play on his actual name. It could be that his mom was just feeling kind of whatever that day and said, you're just like your dad. I'm going to call you Nabal. I don't, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what's going on with this particular name. But he is a wealthy man. He is a powerful man in the region. And um, it was a, a, a day of, the text tells us it was a day of sheep shearing. A day when... Um, he would bring all his sheep in, all his flock in. He had 3,000, it says, and they would shear them. And whenever you had that sort of situation in this environment, it was a feast day. This was a day to everybody get together. It became a big community event. Everybody got together. Everybody ate. Everybody enjoyed each other's uh, company, those sorts of things. David, knowing of this, um, sends 10 of his men to talk to Nabal. And he simply says, we've been here and we've been protecting you. And while we were protecting you, nothing happened to your sheep. Nothing went missing among your, your, your uh, belongings. Nothing happened to you in any way. So we would like to share in this feast day. Can you send us food to enjoy as well? Now, there are some out there who have seen David as kind of an extortionist at this point. You know, the, the old mafia, you know, your business has been doing very well here. If you want it to continue to do well, you'll give it. That's how some people have tried to interpret David's words here. But that's seeing it through a modern lens as opposed to an ancient lens. Okay? That's a different culture. That culture was not a part of what was going on here. What was going on here simply was that if you remember looking back in the previous chapters, the Philistines had formed numerous raiding parties, and they would come in and they would raid cities, and they would raid communities, and they would raid wealthy individuals, and they would steal their stuff, and they would run back to their own towns, to their own places. And David and his men, as much as they were able, they had protected many people in this region. It's a region right around Hebron. It's, it's the region that they've been dwelling in and operating in and so forth. Saul was not doing anything. The, the king, the leader, the government wasn't doing anything to protect these people. And so David has stepped in as part of his role as king. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And all he's doing to Nabal here is he's simply asking for some hospitality. And again, 
The idea, the concept of hospitality in the ancient world and the idea of hospitality today are two very different things. Hospitality was everything in their culture. It defined who you were. And so David's request, first of all, it was not a threatening one. If it had been a threatening one, he'd, he'd, done, he'd send more than just 10 of his messenger guys. He would have sent some troops. It was not unreasonable. It says that, that Nabal was extremely wealthy. He could feed many, many people. And Nabal's response is exactly what you would expect from someone whose name is Fool. It says in verse 10, Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread and my water and my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't even know where they're from. Now, his comment is not, I've never heard of these guys. What are, what are they saying? That, that he's, he's, it's actually a, a sarcastic response. It's a response. We know that he knows who David is because of his line, many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Okay, that's an attack on David's relationship with Saul. Okay, and he's saying here, this guy's not a big deal. Why should I give away my stuff to this guy? Okay, so in other words, he's a guy who has enjoyed the privilege, the help that David has offered. He, he'd enjoyed the, the work that, that David had instilled and the protection and, and all those things that David had done here. But now that it comes time to just show some hospitality, some, some friendship, I don't even know who this guy is. I've heard about this guy who's running away from the king, but why would I, why would I help him? And, and so he sends that word back through the messengers. The messengers come back and they, say, they tell David what's been say, said, and David's response is what? Everybody strap on your swords. That's his response. That's what, exactly what he says. Uh, verse 13, all of you put on your swords. Okay, he's not taking this response very well. And this is that this is that moment, this is that time, this is that 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 defining circumstance that will help us to see what kind of king is David going to be? Is he going to be a tyrant? Is he going to be a despot who if people don't answer the way he wants to or if people are rude or whatever that he wipes them out. He's, he's within his rights in many respects here to do that. But is that who we want him to be? Is that who God wants him to be? Well, one of Nabal's young men, one of his servants, seeing what's going on, knowing what has been said to David, knowing what has transpired in this whole exchange, he goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail. And he says... We got a mess on our hands, Mrs. David requested some help, and he's been very kind to us. He's been very helpful to us. He's treated us very well. He says there in verse fifteen, um, he's been, he's lived among us both day and night. He built a wall around us. No harm ever came to us. He was extremely helpful. Didn't ask anything in return for his assistance. Now he has asked for this hospitality, and your husband, our master, has said, "Nope." Abigail, 
hurries out. She grabs 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes. She could have just left those home as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, <laughs> um, 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on the donkeys. She said to her male servants, go ahead of me. I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now here's the thing. The, 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 the text goes on to tell us that Nabal had a party. He partied it up and all that. He never noticed this all was gone. Okay, It's not until she tells him at the end of the story that he realizes all this is gone. That should tell you, that should give you some sort of clue, some sort of hint of how much this guy actually had. That that much stuff could be taken, that much stuff could be removed from this feast, and nobody notices. About selfishness on his part. But we pick up here in, in verse 26 as Abigail and David encounter each other. And this is going to be the heart of our of our passage of our reflection today. She comes, says she bows forward, and then verse 26. Now, my Lord, talking to David, as surely as Yahweh lives. And as you yourself live, it is Yahweh who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men and follow who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for Yahweh is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights Yahweh's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord, where Yahweh your God protects the living. But he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When Yahweh does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoint you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of the needles of bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when Yahweh does good things for my Lord, may you remember your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May you discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. Today you keep kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as Yahweh, God of Israel, lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him, and said, Go home in peace. See, I have heard what you have said, and have granted your request. So Abigail gets there, and she encounters David, and this is a teaching moment. This is a moment where David changes direction. This is a moment where David learned something important about power, something important about how you interact with people, how you engage people. And from this interaction, I believe we can learn some things about discipleship, how to teach people, how to help people grow in their faith. And so let's talk, first of all, about what 
are the teacherly qualities? What are the things that a teacher should possess that are demonstrated here, that are demonstrated elsewhere in Scripture, that will help us to be disciple makers, that will help us to engage people in a right way, to help them to grow, to help them to learn, to help them to be who God has called them to be. The first thing that we see is humility. In verse 24, it talks about how she comes before David, how she she leans down before him, and she kneels at his feet and says, The guilt is mine, my Lord. Please let your servant speak to you directly. Humility. A willingness to engage people who may be in the wrong, but who you are willing to put yourself under to some degree to reach out to or to respond to. In my job as a professor, there are often students that I interact with who are problematic. Let's put it that way. They're problematic. They're, they're, they're hard to teach. Sometimes it's because they don't care. Sometimes it's because they have a sense of entitlement. Sometimes it's just because they're having a bad day. There's all sorts of different things that go into why a student may not be teachable. And as a professor, I have a choice to make with each one of those encounters, with each one of those exchanges to, to, to either just push them aside and say, okay, I'm not interested in you, I'm not, I'm not going to invest in you, I'm going to focus here just over on these students who do care. Or I can make an effort to break through that, whatever it is that they're feeling, whatever it is that they're experiencing. And I believe my job as a professor is to try to break through. And as we make disciples, as we reach out to people around us, to friends and family and others who God has put in our path that uh, he has directed us to, to lead them to him, there's going to be some who are disinterested. There's going to be some who don't care. There's going to be some who are entitled. And we have to make a choice with each one of them. How are we going to engage this person? And it takes a level of humility to stay with it to stay connected, to not think that we ourselves are entitled to a certain response, that we ourselves are, are uh, better than what it is we're experiencing or what we're encountering. I think of Paul, the apostle, by all accounts one of the most brilliant men of his day, studied at the feet of the top rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. had all the credentials, had all the, the, the work record, had, had the pedigree, had everything that he needed, a Roman citizen. He had, he had it all for his setting, for his time. He was in the highest of all positions. And, let, and yet, here's what he has to say. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. Ephesians 3, 8, I am the very least of all the saints. 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the foremost of sinners. That is 
the mindset, that's the attitude that allows him to be, be the person who wrote more of the New Testament than any other individual. God exalts the humble. When we make ourselves available, when we reach out with a mindset, then, then the person can see the care, the concern. They may or may not respond, but at least we, are, we have put ourselves in a position to where we allow them or we grant them the ability to respond. Second thing is invested. To be a teacher, you have to be invested. Use what you know of them to guide them in a positive way. As I said, there's many reasons to go into why somebody may not be teaching. Many things that are behind them. They may have never had a teacher who cared. They may have never had a person who cared about them. They may have never been taught how to learn. They don't know what that looks like. They don't know how what those skills involve. As a believer, they may have never had anybody model for them witnessing. Witnessing is such a rarity in our churches today that a lot of people have never seen someone actually led to the they don't have that experience. They don't know how to respond. And so by, by, by investing in them, by investing yourself in them, you can begin to learn where they're from and what they're doing and, and how they're thinking. Here in verse 29, Abigail does that. When she does what? She, mentions, she alludes to, she doesn't specifically mention, but she alludes to what? The death of Goliath. When she talks about the slings and stones, how God can guide in such things. She alludes to uh, the, 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 the presence of Saul and what Saul will do. Not the way Nabal did in terms of accusing David, but in terms of acknowledging the difficulties that David is facing. And so what, what does she do there? She, she brings together David's greatest challenge together with David's greatest victory. And by putting those two things together, she, she communicates to him, God can get you through whatever it is you're facing. God can get you through this present situation. She's reminding them of, of him, of presence he already of lessons he already knows. And a big part of discipleship is in, in reminding people of things they already know. They're just not acting on them anymore. They're just not letting them guide them. And as a teacher, as a as a disciple maker, as a as a as a, a helper, that's part of our job. To remind them of things God has done and so that they can know what God is capable of. But in order to do that, you have to be invested in that person. Invested well enough to know their journey to know what they've come through. And so a lot of times, discipling, teaching begins with what? Just listening. Just listening and investing yourself in them. Third, we're called to inspire. In verse 31, Abigail wraps up her plea 
this teachable moment by, by telling David what? Holding off now is going to reap better, greater benefits in the future. If you let the Lord lead you now, if you let God take care of this right now, then when you become king, when, when you actually take the throne, when you actually take that position in that place, God's going to elevate you. God's going to do great things to you because you have listened to him. You have responded to him. It's important for us to, to, to plant in people's hearts and minds the long-term advantages of certain behaviors, certain practices. The, the, the pitfalls of, of feeding self-indulgence. It's important for us to, to, to inspire them not cajole or, or nag them, but to inspire them to, to new heights, to see the blessings, the benefits that God would have them experience. Now, the other side of this journey is obviously the need to be teachable. What are the, 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 the qualities of the teachable person? We see those in David here. And the first one is just like the first of the teacherly qualities. It's humility. It's hard to hear somebody else when you're all wrapped up in yourself. David has been wounded by Nabal's words. Verse 13, verse 21, verse 22, all express his deep-seated anger that he's experiencing. But he's what? He has a willingness to listen, to change course, to hear what God might be able to say. This is something that, that, that he possesses that, that, is, that is special, and it's significant to being teachable. It doesn't matter how good the teacher is, if the student is not willing to actually listen and to change course, all the lessons in the world won't make a difference. We need to possess the, the mindset of Hudson Taylor who said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. I'm not great because of who I am. I am who I am because of the greatness of my God. And we can keep that mindset in place. We can begin to hear. We can begin to listen. We can begin to change course, as David does here. Change direction. Along with that comes the idea of being attentive. As the teacher is invested, we're attentive. We listen. We're sensitive to what's being said. David is able to shift so quickly. Why? Because he's already heard God so many times before. He's already been corrected. He's already been responsive to God. And so it's, it's wired into him. When God speaks, I'm going to listen. And as someone who's growing in the faith, which all of us should be, if we're growing in the faith, then what? We need to be sensitive to what God may be saying. Attentive to his words. Obedient to his direction. 
And then with that comes malleability, which is simply what? The capacity for change. And this is the biggest thing. This is, I believe, the biggest difference between Saul and David. Saul is the same individual at the end of his story as he is at the beginning. He's the same guy, responding the same way, doing the same things, making the same mistakes, blaming others, looking in other directions, all those sorts of things. He is the same person. But there is a noticeable progression in David through much of his life and into the first part of his ministry, his kingship. He listens to people. He responds to people. He's able to change. And as believers, that is such an important quality. Because change is hard. And yet it is such a big part of what God is doing in His church and in His believers' lives. Churches die because members won't change. Faith in certain individuals dies because of their unwillingness to change. Life involves change. Life involves growth. And if you're unwilling to go there, then destruction is all that's left. But I get it. It's hard. It's terrifying. Letting go of control. Letting others sometimes take the lead. Maturing in our faith. Back in 1783, a man named Jacques Charles and the Robert Brothers launched the first hydrogen filled balloon. There in France in the Champ de Mars. They worked for days to try and get the balloon filled and, and so forth. Benjamin Franklin was even president. Daily bulletins were issued about it. It went out daily of how they were preparing and all the work they were doing to fill it and so forth. Finally, they were able to accomplish it. The balloon flew northwards for 45 minutes, pursued by chasers on horseback. Landed some 21 kilometers away from where it had originally started. By every account, this was a success. Man had taken flight. Or at least he produced the ability to take flight. Fortunately, the balloon was unmanned because... As the story goes, when the balloon landed, the local peasants were so terrified by something they'd never seen before that they attacked it with pitchforks and knives and completely destroyed it. How do you respond when you encounter something you've never seen before? When you see the work of God happening around you, in lives, situations and circumstances in your church, but it's not something you're used to. 
not something you're necessarily ready for. We need to be humble, attentive, malleable, listening to what God would do in our lives for to grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the countless individuals throughout my life who have poured into me, who have taught, instructed, and guided. God, I pray that as you lead here this morning, that each person here has been able to see past my limitations and struggles and to hear you, God. God, I pray that you would help us to all be teachable and to take that teachability and to transform it into being teacherly as well. God, help us to take seriously our responsibility to make disciples and to be disciples. In Christ's name.